listener production. It was just so horrific, mm. like the wartime fighting. So we had to hide in the back of like of those lorries while they were transferring food and just hide in there, stay quiet till you reach Uganda. So we had to go to the camps, refugee camps. By the time you go up in a line to get food, time is up. Whoever could manage to get food, it was for fighting, literally. All in all, you be desperate, to be honest. <laughs> You're just desperate. Like hoping one day we will get out of here. Being forcibly displaced from your home is an experience most of us will never have to imagine. But for Razia and 32 million other people, the experience is one of fear, uncertainty and time spent waiting. 11 years of waiting, to be exact. That's how long Razia and her family waited until one day they got a call that would change their life forever. Finally, their visas had been approved and they would be making a new home in Australia. But her journey was far from over. As she stood at the gates at the University of Newcastle, she realised just how challenging her transition into the Australian education system would be. Everything here was digital. The buildings had names she'd never heard of before, the food, the customs, even the clothes. The distance between where she was now and where she came from had never felt so far. You can imagine the, the challenge for you know, a year three or a year four student who's walking in the door, not knowing the language, not knowing what's appropriate, the cultures, the customs. Associate Professor Scott Immig from the University of Newcastle and his colleagues, Dr Maura Sellers and Professor John Fischetti, have dedicated a significant portion of their careers to understanding these challenges and developing the practices and pedagogies that ensure students like Razia won't get left behind. I'm Shani Wellington. I'm a Wandi Wandian and Geringer woman and I'm from the University of Newcastle. And this is The Minds Changing Lives. So my name is Razia Akram and I'm a registered nurse, a new grad, just started in January. Getting an education has always been a priority for Razia. In Uganda, where her family fled to from the Congo, she would trade yard work for a seat in the classroom. So when she came to Australia as a university student, she leaped at the opportunities her new home offered and enrolled in the Open Foundation program at the University of Newcastle. I really, like, appreciate mum because she's a bit more of a person who was like, if they have a chance, let them go study. And I do appreciate her for insisting so much now that I can see it's helped heaps and heaps and heaps. Doesn't matter if we starve, grab the opportunity. Do you remember your first day when you first stepped foot on campus? <laughs> How did you feel? What were you seeing? What were you smelling? What was going on? Very scared. Yeah. I was very, very scared because the environment is different. 
the culture is different. The buildings are different. I didn't even say a single word the whole day. Yeah, I was just seated there. Coffee is a big deal, like my country, unless you're really like rich. But people are not used to coffee. Right. And here coffee's Oh, it's whatever. That's <laughs> how you start your day here. They're Anytime. just throwing it around. <laughs> yeah, that's it was so different and very challenging at the first. Very, very hard. I wasn't used to computer everything in Africa. Like we're so much based on writing everything down, carrying these pamphlets, carrying these books around, lecturers dictate notes. I wasn't used to computer. And when I got here, it was a big blow. Mm. Language for me wasn't the biggest barrier. I think it was not having any support networks. So growing up with no family, no friends. Cav is also an Open Foundation student. But when Cav arrived in Australia, he was just a young child. He arrived here from Turkey with his mum after enduring years of domestic abuse. And unlike most primary school kids his age, his first years here were spent in a detention centre. The detention centre memories weren't, weren't that great. I got picked on by the other kids. It was tough because my mum used to be a registered nurse mm. overseas. And when we came here, she sort of took up three cleaning jobs and she couldn't afford to put me in, in childcare. So she'd take me with her sort of on the job. And I remember like watching my mum clean people's houses. I feel like that left sort of an impression on me in terms of I wanted to build a better life for her. But then she eventually got sick both with her mental health and with other health issues as well. And that's when I became a full-time carer. Do you remember having to learn English together? Was that something that you went through as a process? When you would learn, would you come home and bring her on that journey? I've always been a talkative person, even from a young age. But yeah, I'd, I'd you know, learn at school and then I'd come home and then we'd converse as best as we could in English. Obviously, because I was younger, I picked up English quite mm. quite fast. But she picked it up quite fast as well. Obviously, she really worked hard to, you know, to learn English and to, to integrate into, into society here. But my experiences growing up in the education system weren't that grand. My last memory of academia was doing terribly in HSC. Mm. Those years are make or break for so many people. There's lots of studies that show if we don't support families mm. early on and children early on, that the lost benefits to those individuals and to the country are tremendous. Associate Professor Scott Immig is a teacher of teachers as such, delivering courses in supervision, leadership, mentoring and curriculum. But recently, his research morphed. For me, as a teacher educator, as a leader educator, I spend a lot of time actually out in the schools, you know, interacting with educators. And the fascinating thing is that you begin to see trends and, and waves of kind of opinion and challenges and opportunities. And a few years ago, about three years ago, I was out and noticed that I was hearing repeatedly in the region from principals who were saying, we are having a lot of families with refugee and asylum seeker backgrounds showing up in our schools and we're simply not prepared. We're not sure how to support these students. That, that got me thinking, this is probably not a local, not a local issue. This is a, a national or a worldwide issue, as, as we know. 
so that that's that's what's pushed me down this path of trying to really better understand how do we prepare leaders, how do we prepare educators to meet the needs of these families as they arrive. Focused on both primary and high schools, Scott interviewed principals across the globe and analysed the differences and commonalities of each to find out what ingredients set or didn't set students up for success. Because schools tend to be the first place of contact for refugees in Australia, and with about 1,800 children from refugee backgrounds expected to enter New South Wales schools in the next year alone, understanding how to cater for these students has never been so important. Part of what we found in our research is that every principal, every teacher has anecdotes. They, they point to individual experiences to highlight what it was that makes them realize that the degrees of difference, as we talked about, are so great. There was one principal, I think, about an Australian principal who told us about how at a group of students who simply weren't engaging in play, and these were newly arrived students, and couldn't figure out why they wouldn't join the, the group at recess, and then discovered that in these students' home country, they had come from Afghanistan, if you were wealthy enough to play it means you were likely a student who could be kidnapped. You were likely somebody who was worth money to somebody with nefarious means or nefarious ideas. And that highlights just how extreme these, these differences are. You know, the, the principals or the teachers who tell us about when the bells go off and the kids dive under the tables, that drives it home to people that, that there are these tremendous differences. We spoke with educators in five different countries. We, we looked at, to talked to educators in Australia, New Zealand, and the U.S., and Northern Ireland and England. And consistently we heard, dig deeper. The very first thing you can do is find out everything you can about these students, find out about their culture, find out about what's happened in their country. Go to the local mosque, learn about the culture, talk to community members, find out as much as you can, because the more you know, the more able you are to be responsive. Even though they're so few and far and across the seas in these principles that you found that were doing it really well, was there any approaches that you were finding they were all taking? Was there, you know, big gaps in their approaches? So there were definitely commonalities. It was, you know, the first was the digging deep, as we talked about, really educating yourself tremendously. Second thing was about who they hire. There was a really big focus on hiring people based on dispositional traits, hiring people based on their, their ability for care and compassion, their, their empathy. But principals were also very clear with us that, that when they think about empathy being empathetic, they also didn't want empathy to be debilitating. And these principals were very clear, look, we, the best thing we can do for these students is bring them into a warm, nurturing environment, really care for them, but give them the skills so they can then integrate into society. And so that was a, a big piece for them as well. I believe that 99% of what we do is around relationships. Hi, I'm Deb Kelly. I'm the principal of Jesmond Public School. I've been the principal at Jesmond for four years. This is my um, fifth year being there. And I guess that coming to Jesmond Public School has been such a different experience to what I've had in my principalship before because of our high number of English as second language students and we have a high number of refugees in our school. We have approximately 72% of students 
from English as a second language. So we offer lots of programs in our school to cater for the individual differences and I guess the diversity that is happening across our school probably over the last four years and it continues to increase now that we've gotten through COVID. Deb is a living, breathing example of the informed, reflective leader that Scott talks about in his research. Principles that set the tone and lead by example, creating spaces of well-being and belonging for students from refugee background is foundational to their success. You know, I sat with someone um, at the end of last year and, and supported them around how to pay a parking fine and how to apply for a visa and what do we do when we need to go and buy some furniture. So, so our job is going above and beyond in the classroom and giving them those experiences that we know that they wouldn't have if they weren't at school. Mm-hmm. And one of the big things that we're doing is we um, have swimming lessons for our students because that's something that a lot of children at Jesmond Public School, they don't have access to. So we provide that extra life skill to ensure that there's that equity across every classroom, every student, every family. Principals really were big fans of doing, doing before teaching. So it was incredibly important for them to see that in their schools that students were, were out having experiences, that whether it was in the, in the school gardens or putting on a play or going to visit the farm or the factory doing those things first so that when they come back to the classroom, everybody has a shared language. We have specialised EALD teachers, English as a second language and dialect, and they work with the students around their oral language and improving their literacy skills so that they can start to communicate more clearly and more efficiently. Another thing that we do is we have a lot of programs where we can, I guess, support them in social skills, interactions with other students. What do you do when something goes wrong around behaviour and expectations? Um, All our staff have been trained in um, STARS, which gives us an understanding of considering different needs when a student comes to your school from a trauma-informed background. You know, when you hear from principals who say, I'm going to be involved in everything, I'm going to be the one who you know, when that family comes in, I'm going to sit for two or three hours in that first meeting and I'm going to learn all I can about them and I'm going to make sure they know everything about the school. They're the ones who set the tone. And then those educators that they hire, those teachers, they make it happen in the classroom. And so it's, you know, you need to hire the the best people you can, the most caring, the most empathetic, but really you need to hire people who are willing to learn. Having been a teacher, job is so demanding. It is not, uh, you know, an eight to five job. It is nights, it's weekends. And so for, for a principal to say, look, we're going to do this extra professional development. We're going to, we're going to learn about trauma-informed practice, or we're going to, we're going to learn about art therapy, whatever it is. For teachers to have to absorb that on top of everything else, it takes a special, a special group of teachers to stay in that school and make that work. And to see it as a priority. Very, very much. In terms of workload, I think the staff realise and understand and they want to make a difference. Mm -hmm. So they're doing those extra things. And as the principal, I ensure that, that I'm giving them the time to do that. 
We have our curriculum, but we personalise our pedagogy. So we're personalising what we're teaching. We know that when the children are safe, when they have that sense of belonging, when they're connected, when they have a student voice in the school, that that we see every part of their learning increase and their, their outcomes start to increase and they start to make change and they start to make improvement. We had a family that came to our school that had no English at all. Um, they're a refugee family and they had a really traumatic experience in their home country. They came and there was an older student and she really wanted to be part of the public speaking competition that we had. So she had been here for three months and she was making great progress. And, you know, her language was improving. She was able to do a little bit of translation for her mum because her mum didn't speak any English. And she kept working on this imaginative, creative piece around unicorns and magical creatures. And she stood out the front of all of the school and read this wonderful, and I shouldn't say read, she presented this wonderful speech on magical creatures. I looked around the room and there were so many staff that were crying because the words that she used were, they were so persuasive, they were so creative. She had captivated the whole audience and at the end, the stage three students cheered and clapped for her because it was amazing. This was a girl that came to our school only three months prior and could not speak any English. And it was just, oh, it was just such a goosebump moment. We were so proud of her. And then she went off to zone and she was so proud of what she achieved and her confidence has increased so much. Do you remember your first day? At primary school? I actually do. I remember hiding behind my mum when we walked into class. Because, I, you know, I'd been to a school prior to that, the English Enabling School. I'd made a lot of friends there, and most of the kids there were refugees as well. Mm. It was a great primary school. Yeah. Everyone was so inclusive and understanding, and particularly my principal there. He, he really accommodated for my mother and I. I think school could become the, the anchor for mm. families. It can be the thing that actually makes the transition doable. If you have a place where you as a family feel comfortable, you, you feel like it's a place that really cares about my children, it cares about me as an individual, it's a place where children and their parents can come and be part of the community. The ways that we can empower children from the time they're young, give them strengths and give them you know, a belief in their capacity. I think you can set them on a journey where they actually, where they can, they can actually find out who they are. They can be what, you know, they can, they can be what they really want to be. And as, as trite and as silly as that sounds, if we, if we don't provide students with those, those supports early, I just feel like we've, we've lost a generation. We have our own history of assimilation in this country. That's not what we're trying to do here, is it? No, no. We're, we're trying to move away from assimilation to integration. Mm. We're trying to make it very clear that we are incredibly pleased that you're here and we value what you bring. We value your, your own culture. We'd love to learn more about your food and your dress and your language. Love to hear more about your customs. And we'd also like you to learn about ours. That's foundational to what needs to happen in the schools. And how wonderful would it be if you, if you show up from, from Afghanistan, you show up from Syria, and there's a sign on the door in your language welcoming you. 
you know, to the school. Mm-hmm. Your name is is there, and you can read it. You know, that's that sends a powerful message. To me, it's very important. I feel like helps me to identify myself. This is who I am. This is what I do. It was so beautiful when we had to bring different dishes. And I felt like everybody asking me how I made my dish. Why do I put on a scarf in this hot weather? Makes me feel good. And being proud to let them know. know? Yeah, exactly. To be honest, it's not like you're different in a, a special way or in a bad way, but you are different. How important is it for the compassion to be modelled as well and understanding at that age for the students themselves. You know, kids aren't always incredibly kind. So it's important that the teachers help mm. the, the class understand, help the class understand what it's like when somebody is new. Help them, help, just help them to empathise a little bit. We heard from multiple teachers who talked about the the buddy systems they put in place where they actually intentionally link kids who they feel have the innate skills right now with these newly arrived students. And then what that does is it forms, it forms a a friendship group and then that group will expand and expand and they'll keep making it larger and larger. And it's just foundational. It sounds simplistic, but it's about being very purposeful in the actions that, that teachers take with the students. And, and then you know, you talked about the long-term, you know, implications of, of those skills. Rarely in the news do we hear about, you know, how wonderful a school's doing based on anything other than test scores. Mm. But I think you often walk into a school, you know, you walk into a school and it just has this amazing feeling. And it's, it's the energy. It is. <laughs> it is. And so much of that has to, it's so much that has nothing to do with the test scores. It has to do with the kind of culture mm-hmm. that the administrators, that the teachers and the students have all bought into and the families have bought into. And it, it's predicated on care. Unfortunately for Cav, his high school did not have the same inclusive culture as his primary school. Due to bullying, he found himself moving to a new school in year eight. Yet he still found that there was little understanding or support for students like him, and his grades suffered. But that was okay. He planned to go into the army, and he did. But he couldn't get rid of the little voice on his shoulder telling him he was destined for more. Mum had spoken to me and said, you know, you need to go to university. I'm not going to give you my blessing unless you at least give it a go. Just try it out. But I, I told her, I said, look, I'll, I'll enrol in the Open Foundation program and I will do a course a semester because you, you need to complete 40 units. Then I, I you know, I realised near the end of first semester, I really, really enjoyed it. And I'd actually seen an email from a Pathways program into medicine. So they had up to six places available for Open Foundation students. Something clicked in my mind and I thought, this is weird because I wanted to be a doctor as a child. And there's a possibility I might be able to study medicine. Open Foundation is a pathway program designed for people who do not have the qualifications or academic knowledge required for direct entry into an undergraduate degree program. 
So for students from a refugee background, like Razia, who never got the chance to do the HSC, or for Cav, who struggled at high school, getting the opportunity to pursue their dreams despite their challenges has been life-changing. Razia's first experience of Australian schooling was taking part in this Pathway program. It echoes the same principles Scott defines in his research, and as such, she's thrived. Hoping to pursue medicine next, proving that with the right supports, anything is possible. I remember one of my lecturers was like, I don't mind every week doing like a Zoom call with you to go through what I did go through in the classroom. Just you alone or anything you want coming on campus. I used to feel so like emotional. I was like, they're so good. They were amazing. I have a colleague who likes to talk about how schools are a place where students come to watch their teachers work. And that is really in many ways what schooling is for a lot of students. This environment we're creating is not that. That's the place that we, a kind and compassionate and caring place, is not a place where you come to watch your teacher work. It's a place where you come and you engage with your peers, where you engage with the content material and where you feel valued. There was actually another university in Perth that offered a Pathways program. But the the, the catch was that you had to get a 75% ATAR to get entry into the university. So it wasn't quite equitable, I guess. And then I, you know, I look at the University of Newcastle and realise how great the Pathways program here is. Now, you might recall Cav saying he applied to medicine through the Pathways program, but that didn't mean he was in yet. He had worked tirelessly with his lectures and teachers to improve his score, but he wasn't sure if he would make it. Until an email arrived in his inbox. I was like, this is my rejection letter. And then I opened it up and it was my offer. And I just broke down crying (laughs) in front of everyone at the gym and they were all looking at me like, what the heck? (laughs) And then I, the first thing I did was I rang mum and because my email was logged in on her phone as well, she'd already seen it and I rang her up and she was already crying. She crying, you crying. crying. And I was like, should I finish my, should I finish my workout? My she's like, nah, set, get through my yeah. set. She's like, nah, come home. <laughs> then went home and we had celebrated and, you know, I informed my, my lecturers from Open Foundation who were amazing. I had really, really great lecturers. And then, you know, shared the news with close friends. For me, medicine is sort of, I see it as a, as a platform to give back. It is making a difference and I know that what we're doing at Jesmond, um, what every school is doing is making an impact on students' lives and community lives and, and that's what's really important. Scott, what is next? Looking to the future, what comes next for this research and building these safe spaces? We're going to look at the early years. So how do, how do we support students as they're coming into school and when they're first starting, kids who've never had any kind of formal schooling before? Because it's, 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 it's even a bigger ask for schools to actually create these environments. But beyond that, what we're doing is we're trying to connect educators around the world. So we've built, as everybody does, we've built a site where, you know, an online site where we're connecting principals and teachers around the world and who are, who are wrestling with these challenges. 
So it's wonderful to see a principal in Northern Ireland pose a question and a teacher in New Zealand responding to that question. So we're doing that. And then the other thing we're doing is we're trying to translate all of our work. We're trying to translate a lot of it so that it becomes more accessible because you said you read one of my articles and I appreciate that because (laughs) we are oftentimes paid and expected to write articles in journals that aren't read by a lot of people who we need to read them. And it's not a knock at all against teachers. It's a knock against our system. What we need to be doing is translating the work at the very beginning. So that's what we're doing now. We're translating it. We're we're creating professional development around this work so that we can go into schools and say, you know, here's some suggestions based on the good learning from around the world. Scott's research can be summarised in these three points. One, welcome new arrivals with open arms. Two, help staff to understand trauma. Three, learn about a new student, their family and their home country. It might sound intuitive or simple, but Scott's research has been groundbreaking in understanding the silent stories of students from refugee backgrounds and providing teachers and principals a language and framework to start implementing the strategies needed to appropriately cater for their needs. Because it's like they say, kids are the future and every child deserves a shot at a bright one. This podcast is a listener production brought to you in partnership with the University of Newcastle, hosted by me, Shani Wellington, produced by Kelsey Menzies, executive producer is Todd Stevens, with audio production by Kelly Fulston. Listener.